Section 10 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lewis Heeman, Louisville, Kentucky. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism by the National Society of Music. Section 10. Ludwig van Beethoven. Part 2. Part 3. Perhaps the most obvious element of his character was his essential innocence and simplicity, with all the curious secondary traits that accompany a nature fundamentally incapable of becoming sophisticated. Love of nature was one part of it. To an exceptional degree, he loved to walk in the woods and to make long sojourns in the country. Lying on his back in the fields, staring into the sky, he forgot himself and his anxieties in a kind of ecstatic delight. Clober, the painter, writes, He would stand still as if listening, with a piece of paper in his hand, look up and down, and then write something. Not always was he quiet, but often strode impatiently along, humming, singing, or roaring, with an occasional pause for the purpose of making notes. In this manner, dozens of sketchbooks were filled with ideas which enable the student to trace, step by step, the evolution of his themes. An Englishman who lived in intimate friendship with him for some months asserts that he never met anyone who so delighted in nature or so thoroughly enjoyed flowers, clouds, or other natural subjects. Nature was almost meat and drink to him. He seems positively to exist upon it. This quality is emphasized by Beethoven's letter to Therese Malfatti, in which he says, No man on earth can love the country as I do. It is trees, woods, and rocks that return to us the echo of our own thought. Like the Greeks, he could turn the dancing of the satyrs into an acceptable offering on the altar of art. Of this part of his nature, the sixth, pastoral symphony, is the monument. It is as if he took special occasion once for all to let speak the immediate voice of Pan within him. It is full of the sights and sounds of nature, not, however, as Beethoven himself says, a painting, but an expression of feeling. In an analysis of the Allegro, referring to the constant repetition of short phrases, Grove says, I believe that the delicious, natural, mayday, out-of-doors feeling of this movement arises in great measure from this kind of repetition. It causes a monotony, which, however, is never monotonous, and which, though no imitation, is akin to the constant sounds of nature, the monotony of rustling leaves and swaying trees and running brooks and blowing wind, the call of birds and the hum of insects. And he adds, as a summing up of its beauty, however abstruse or characteristic the mood of Beethoven, the expression of his mind is never dry or repulsive. To hear one of his great compositions is like contemplating not a work of art or man's device, but a mountain, a forest, 
or other immense product of nature. At once so complex and so simple, the whole so great and overpowering, the parts so minute, so lovely, and so consistent, and the effect so inspiring, so beneficial, and so elevating. Another phase of this deep, unworldly innocence was the very exhibition of temper that so often brought him into trouble. Sophistication and conformity remove these violences from men's conduct, and rightly so. Often with them is also removed much of the earnestness, the spontaneous tenderness, and the trustfulness of innocence. What but a deeply innocent, unsophisticated mind could have dictated words like these, which were written to Dr. Wegeler after a misunderstanding? My only consolation is that you knew me almost from my childhood, and, oh, let me say it myself, I was really always of good disposition, and in my dealings always strove to be upright and honest. How otherwise could you have loved me? Together with this yearning for understanding from his friends was a consciousness also of genius, which was humble, the very opposite of vanity and self-conceit. You will only see me again when I am truly great, not only greater as an artist, but as a man, you shall find me better, more perfect. And again, I am convinced good fortune will not fail me. With whom need I be afraid of measuring my strength? This is the language of self-confidence, and also of a nature thoroughly innocent and simple. Still another, and perhaps the most remarkable phase of his character, was a certain boisterous love of fun and high spirits, which betrayed itself on the most unexpected occasions, often in puns, jests, practical jokes, and satiric comment. He was, in fact, an invincible humorist, ready in season or out of season, with or without decorum, to expend his jocose or facetious pleasantry upon friend or enemy. If he could deliver a home thrust, it was often accompanied with a roar of laughter, and his sense of a joke often overthrew every other consideration. Throwing books, plates, eggs at the servants, pouring a dish of stew over the head of the waiter who had served him improperly, sending the wisp of goat's hair to the lady who had asked him for a lock of his own, these were his sardonically jesting retorts to what he considered to be clumsiness or sentimentality. The estimable Schuppenzig, who in later life grew very fat, was the subject of many a joke. My lord Falstaff was one of his nicknames, and a piece of musical drollery exists, scrawled by Beethoven on a blank page of the end of his sonata, Opus 28, entitled Lob an den Dicken, Praise to the Fat One, which consists of a sort of canon to the words Schuppenzig ist ein Lump, 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 and so on. Beethoven writes to Count von Brunswick, Schuppenzig is married. They say his wife is as fat as himself. What a family! Nicknames are invented for friend and foe. Johann, the Gutsbesitzer, is the brain-eater or pseudo-brother. His brother's widow is Queen of the Night, and a canon written to Count Moritz Lichnowsky is set to the words Bester Herr Graf, 
du bist ein Schaf. Often his humor is in bad taste and frequently out of season, but it is always on call, a boisterous, biting, shrewd 18th century gift for ridicule and jest. It must be admitted, however, that he was usually blind to the jest when it was turned on himself. There is an anecdote to the effect that in Berlin in 1796, he interrupted Himmel, the pianist, in the midst of an improvisation, asking him when he was intending to begin in earnest. When, however, months afterward, Himmel attempted to even up the joke by writing to Beethoven about the invention of a lantern for the blind, the composer not only did not see the point, but was enraged when it was pointed out to him. Often, however, the humorous turn which he was enabled to give must have assisted in averting difficult situations, and not always was his jesting so heavy-handed. He speaks of sending a song to the Princess Kinski, one of the stoutest, prettiest ladies in Vienna, and the following note shows his keen understanding of the peculiarities of popular favorites. Anna Milder, a celebrated German singer, was needed for rehearsal. Manage the affair cleverly with Milder, he writes. Only tell her that you really come in my name, and in advance beg her not to sing anywhere else. But tomorrow I will come myself in order to kiss the hem of her garment. Another phase of the essential simplicity as well as greatness of his mind is in his direct grasp of the central thought of any work. He overlooked incidental elements in order to get at the fundamental idea. This quality, as well as his own innate tendency toward the heroic and grand, led him to such writers as Homer, Plutarch, and Shakespeare, and made it impossible for him to find any interest in trivial or frivolous themes. He was always looking for suitable subjects for opera, but could never bring himself to regard seriously such a subject as Figaro or Don Giovanni. The less noble impulses were not, for him, worthy themes for art. He refused with horror, Wagner notes, to write music to ballet, shows, fireworks, sensual love intrigues, or an opera text of a frivolous tendency. Mozart, with his divine nonchalance, snatched at any earthly happiness, any gaiety of the flesh or spirit, and changed it instantly into the immortal substance of his music. But Beethoven, with his peasant seriousness, could not jest with virtue or the rhythmical order of the world. His art was his religion, and must be served with a devotion in which there was none of the easy pleasantness of the world. This same ability of grasping the fundamental idea, however, led him also sometimes to set an undue valuation upon an inferior poet, such as Klopstock, whom it is said he read habitually for years. Something in the nobility and grandeur of the ideas at the bottom of this poet's work caused Beethoven to overlook its pompousness and chaotic quality. The words meant less for him than the emotion and conception which prompted them. Beethoven himself, however, says that Goethe spoiled Klopstock for him, but it was only, fortunately, to provide him with something better. 
his taste for whatever was noble and grand in art never left him, and, so far as he was able, he lived up to the idea that it was the artist's duty to be acquainted with the ancient and modern poets, not only so as to choose the best poetry for his own work, but also to afford food for his inspiration. Beethoven from the first faced the world with a defiant spirit and a sort of wild independence. His sordid childhood nourished in him a rugged habit of self-dependence, and the knowledge of his own powers was like a steady beacon holding him unfalteringly to a consciousness of his high destiny. He believed, with all the innocence of a great mind, that gifts of genius were more than sufficient to raise their possessor to a level with the highest nobility. And with such a belief, he could not pretend to a humility he was far from feeling in the companionship of social superiors. This feeling was perfectly compatible with the genuine modesty and clearness of judgment in regard to his own work. Do not snatch the laurel wreaths from Handel, Haydn, and Mozart, he writes. They are entitled to them, as yet I am not. But his modesty in things artistic was born, after all, of a sense of his own kinship with the greatest masters of art. He could face a comparison with them, knowing full well he belonged to their court. But to courts of a more temporal nature, he did not and could not belong, however often he chanced to come under a princely roof. The light ease of manner, the assured courtesies, the happy audacities of speech and conduct which are native to the life of the salon and court were foreign to his nature. The suffrage of the fashionable world of Vienna he won by reason of qualities which were alien to them, but yet touched their sympathies, satisfied their genuine love of music, and pricked their sensibilities as with a goad. His is perhaps the first historic instance of artistic temperament dominating and imposing itself upon society. Byron, to a certain extent, defied social customs and allowed himself liberties which he expected to be excused on account of his genius and popularity. But he was fundamentally much more closely allied to the world of fashion than Beethoven, who was a law unto himself and in sympathy with society only so far as it understood and applauded his actions. Theoretically, at least, he was an ardent revolutionist. During the last decades of the 18th century, the revolution in France had dwarfed all other political events in Europe, and republicanism was in the air. Two years after Beethoven left Bonn, the electorate of Cologne was abolished, and during the succeeding period, many other small principalities were swallowed up by the larger kingdoms. The old order was changed, and almost all Europe was involved in warfare. In 1799, the allied European states began to make headway against the invading French armies, and as a consequence, the Directory fell into disfavor in France. Confusion and disorder prevailed, 
the Royalists recovering somewhat of their former power, and the Jacobins threatening another reign of terror. In this desperate state of affairs, Napoleon was looked to as the liberator of his country. How he returned in all haste from his victorious campaign in Egypt was hailed with wild enthusiasm, joined forces with some of the directors, drove the Council of 500 from the Chamber of Deputies, 1799, and became First Consul, in fact, Master of France, need hardly be recounted here. Beethoven regarded Napoleon as the embodiment of the new hopes for the freedom of mankind which had been fostered by the revolution. That he had also been affected by the martial spirit of the times is revealed in the first and second symphonies. It was the third, however, which was to prove the true monument to republicanism. The story is one of the familiar tales of musical history. Still full of confidence and faith in the Corsican hero, Beethoven composed his great Eroica Symphony, 1804, and inscribed it with the name Bonaparte. A fair copy had already been sent to an envoy who should present it to Napoleon, and another finished copy was lying on the composer's work table when Beethoven's friend Ries brought the news that Napoleon had assumed the title of emperor. Forthwith, the admiration of Beethoven turned to hatred. After all, then, he cried, he is nothing but an ordinary mortal. He will trample all the rights of men underfoot to indulge his ambition and become a greater tyrant than anyone. The title page was seized, torn in half, and thrown on the floor, and the symphony was rededicated to the memory of Un Grand Uomo. It is said that Beethoven was never heard to refer to the matter again until the death of Napoleon in 1821 when he remarked, in allusion to the funeral march of his second movement, I have already foreseen and provided for that catastrophe. Probably nothing, however, beyond the title page was altered. It is still a portrait, and we may believe a favorable portrait of Napoleon, and it should be listened to in that sense. Not as a conqueror, that would not attract Beethoven's admiration, but for the general grandeur and loftiness of his course and of his public character. How far the portraiture extends, whether to the first movement only or through the entire work, there will probably be always a difference of opinion. The first movement is certain. The march is certain also, as is shown by Beethoven's own remark, and the writer believes, after the best consideration he can give to the subject, that the other movements are also included in the picture, and that the poco andante at the end represents the apotheosis of the hero. Part 4 It is vain, however, that one looks for a parallel between the life and the work of the master. In everyday matters he was impatient, abrupt, and often careless while in his art his patience was such as to become even a slow brooding, an infinite care. His life was often distracted and melancholy. His music is never distracted or melancholy, except insofar as great art can be melancholy with a nobly tragic, universal depth of sadness. 
In political matters, a revolutionist, and in social life, a rebel. In his art, he accepted forms as he found them, expanding them, indeed, but not discarding them. Audacious and impassioned, not only in private conduct, but in his extempore playing. In his writing, he was cautious and selective, beyond all belief. The sketchbooks are a curious and interesting witness to the slow and tentative processes of his mind. More than 50 of these, books of coarse music paper of 200 or more pages, 16 staves to the page, were found among his effects after death and sold. One of these books was constantly with him, on his walks, by his bedside, or when traveling, and in them he wrote down his musical ideas as they came, rewrote and elaborated them until they reached the form he desired. They are, as Grove points out, perhaps the most remarkable relic that any artist or literary man has left behind him. In them can be traced the germs of his themes from crude or often trivial beginning, growing under his hand spontaneously, as it seemed, into the distinguished and artistic designs of his completed work. A dozen or a score attempts at the same theme can often be found, and the more they are elaborated, the more spontaneous they become. In these books, it can also be seen how he often worked upon four or five different compositions at the same time, how he sometimes kept in mind a theme or an idea for years before finally using it, and how extraordinary was the fertility of his genius. Notabam, the author of Beethoveniana, says, Had he carried out all the symphonies which are begun in these books, we should have at least fifty. Thus we see his method of work and the stages through which his compositions passed. He took a story out of his own life, the life of a friend, a play of Goethe or Shakespeare, and he labored, eternally altering and improving, until at last every phrase expressed just the emotions he himself felt. The exhibition of his themes, as expressed in the sketchbooks, show how passionately and patiently he worked. Although he certainly sometimes allowed his music to be affected by outside events, as has been traced, for example, in the Eroica Symphony, yet in most instances his work seems to be independent of the outward experiences of his life. One of the most striking examples of the detachment of his artistic from his everyday life is in connection with the Second Symphony, written in 1802, the year in which he wrote also the celebrated Heiligenstadt Will. This document was prompted by his despair over his bad health, frequent unhappiness on account of his brothers, and his deafness, which was now pronounced incurable. In it, he says, During the last six years, I have been in a wretched condition. I am compelled to live as an exile. If I approach near to people, a feeling of hot anxiety comes over me, lest my condition should be noticed. At times, I was on the point of putting an end to my life. Art alone restrained my hand. Oh, it seemed as if I could not quit this earth until I had produced all I felt within me, and so I continued this wretched life. Wretched, indeed, with so sensitive a body 
that a somewhat sudden change can throw me from the best into the worst state. Lasting, I hope, will be my resolution to bear up until it pleases the inexorable Parsi to break the thread. My prayer is that your life may be better, less troubled by cares than mine. Recommend to your children virtue. It alone can bring happiness, not money. So let it be. I joyfully hasten to meet death. O oh, Providence, let me have just one pure day of joy, so long is it since true joy filled my heart. O oh, when, divine being, shall I be able once again to feel it in the temple of nature and of men? Such was his expression of grief at a time when the nature of his malady became known to him. And who can doubt its depth and sincerity? In it the man speaks from the heart. But in the same year also the second symphony was written, and in this the artist speaks. What a wonderful difference! The scherzo is as proudly gay in its capricious fantasy as the andante is completely happy and tranquil. For everything is smiling in this symphony. The warlike spirit of the allegro is entirely free from violence. One can only find there the grateful fervor of a noble heart, in which are still preserved unblemished the loveliest illusions of life. There seem to be two periods, one from 1808 to 1811, during his love affair with Therese Malfatti, and again after his brother's death in 1815, when outward circumstances prevailed against the artist and rendered him comparatively silent. Unable to loosen the grip of personal emotion, during these periods he wrote little of importance. During all the rest of his agitated and tormented life, nothing, neither the constant series of passionate and brief loves, nor constant bodily sickness, trouble about money, trouble about friends, relations, and the unspeakable nephew, meant anything vital to his deeper self. The nephew helped to kill him, but could not color a note of his music. If, as is the case of the Eroica, music was sometimes the reflection of present emotion, it was still oftener, as in the case just cited, his magic against it, his shelter from grief, the rock wall with which he shut out the woes of life. End of section 10.